Our scripture text this morning is found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 40, and we'll read the first 11 verses in this very marvelous and majestic and breathtakingly God-centered and God-exalting chapter of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 40. And while you're turning there in your scriptures, let me uh, just greet you in the Lord and allow me to express my thanks to your pastor and elders for the opportunity to minister the word of God to you. Uh, while I'm in town for a few days uh, away from Duluth, Minnesota. The last time I preached in this pulpit was almost four years ago, I think, and no congregation ever remains the same or static spiritually over that length of time. Uh, Because I'm married to a daughter of this congregation, I do frequently pray for you, and I do trust in the Lord that uh, you have been uh, matured in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and you are growing in your faith and love towards one another, and that you are being renewed and transformed inwardly, day by day, into the likeness and image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see the day of glory drawing near uh, upon us. Uh, Things do change, but God is unchangeable. Uh, He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Heaven and earth, the scripture says, pass away, Uh, But from everlasting to everlasting, his purposes remain the same. Our passage in Isaiah 40 will bring that reminder uh, to you that God-filled perspective to the people of God who are often troubled in their hearts. And there are indeed certain chapters in the Bible that every Christian believer should be intensely acquainted with, uh, such as Psalm 23 we just heard about, or Romans chapter 8, And I might suggest to you that you add Isaiah chapter 40 to that list. Uh, You need to be well acquainted with this whole chapter and come back to it frequently in your own Christian life. And I pray that our study this morning will, in some sense, help you do that for the rest of your pilgrimage. Let me briefly set our text in in its context. The prophet Isaiah is speaking to the people of God, soon to be exiled, people of God in the 8th century BC. In a way that parallels the structure of the whole Bible, of course, you know, the Bible has 66 books divided into 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures and 27 books of the New Testament. After the first 39 chapters, Isaiah chapter 40 leads us into the second half of the book, the new gospel section, if you will, chapters 40 through 66, where the message of the salvation of God is beginning to be amplified more clearly for the people of God. Uh, That message is brought mainly through this servant of the Lord figure who will punctuate this latter half of the book, most famously in Isaiah chapter 53. And we come to a text this morning that opens that very second half of that whole book that opens the section, the first 11 verses of Isaiah chapter 40. So that will be our passage today. Uh, But as I mentioned to you, uh, be acquainted with the entirety of this whole chapter. And perhaps you can read through the rest of the chapter Uh, on your own this afternoon and profitably uh, spent the Lord's Day afternoon 
in contemplation of the glory of your God. Well, let's uh, seek the Lord and ask for his very present help and everlasting blessing as we prepare to sit under the hearing uh, preaching of his word together. Let's pray together. A great God and gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do praise you that you have exalted above all things your word and your name. And most of all, you have highly exalted your own beloved Son, who is seated at your right hand. And so we pray that through the preaching of Jesus Christ, you be pleased to glorify your name. We do ask that in the unfolding of the scriptures, you impart uh, both life and joy, and also light to the souls of your people. We pray that your love would be richly poured into the hearts of your people. And so adorn, Lord, your dwelling place with holiness, and in your good pleasure, uh, do good to your city and build up your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God, beginning at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. We'll read down to verse 11. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, or in the Hebrew literally, speak to the heart of Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the gl- glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its Beauty, all its hesed in the Hebrew, is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, the gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. 
and gently lead those that are with young. That's what it's reading in God's holy word. The way the Lord our God comforts his people is by speaking. The way the Lord your God comforts you is by a verbal proclamation of the word entrusted to a human servant. It is through speaking through a human voice. It is by speaking directly to the heart. Preaching The proclamation of the word of God is what brings comfort and edification and encouragement to the people of God. Surely that is the great emphasis on the very design of spiritual gifts that are given to be exercised in the church. Uh, Isn't that what you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? That the one who prophesies speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So Paul says, let every word be spoken to the people, be intelligible, speaking forth the word of God in the context. Let the preaching of the word of God be in the context of the love described in the previous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, in the context of that love. And let that speaking Uh, be done with a glorious aim of building up the church and comforting the people of God with the gospel. The way God comforts you, believers, is by a verbal proclamation of the word of God. In our larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism 155, which orders the life of God's people in this place, rightly explains that the Spirit of God makes the preach reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of salvation, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Now, if what I have just spoken the last couple of minutes is something strange to you, or if you do not know from your own experience what I've just described and set before you, there are only two possibilities that exist. Either you have not been born again, or you have not truly heard the preaching of God's word ministered in the spirit of God. Now, that strange phenomenon happened in Isaiah's own generation. Isaiah ministered in a time when preaching fell by the wayside. It was out of season. Hearing, they do not understand. The people of God in their extremity, in their extreme needs and great needs, were turning to all sorts of things for comfort. Rather than turning to the true and living God, they were not looking to the law and the testimony but to unimaginable things like necromancers and mediums and so forth, which is an inevitable consequence whenever people turn away from the appointed means that God has given. So the people of God in the 8th century BC turned to things of their own devices and walked by the light of their own kindling, calling upon the nation of Assyria, relying on human technology and idolatry and diplomacy 
worship became a matter of lip service rather than an engagement at the heart level with a true and living God. Jesus Christ, the sanctuary to all who trust in him, Isaiah says, became a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. That is the indictment that the prophet Isaiah brought to the visible church of his own generation. And yet, as he opens the second half of the book, Isaiah was commanded by the Lord to speak. That's how he was to tackle all the spiritual issues that are prevalent among the people of God by means of preaching, by speaking directly to the heart of the people of God, by, by bringing the word of God verbally, Isaiah, as he's commanded in verse 1, was to comfort, comfort the people of God, not with some therapeutic or psychological comfort, as our own generation is very much obsessed with, even within the church, but with theological and evangelical comfort that is grounded in and flows out of God and his gospel. That is the commission Isaiah receives in verse 1 when the Lord commands him, comfort, comfort my people. And indeed, you notice in verse 2, there are three gospel grounds mentioned immediately, (coughs) jumping out of verse 2. Look at the three things that Isaiah is told to declare to Jerusalem. These are ultimately spiritual realities that are wrought for us more completely for our own enjoyment and our possession within the new covenant Isaiah is told, cry to her, remind her first that her warfare is ended. The hardship, the misery, the bondage is all over. The enmity has been removed. The alienation and the hostility have all been dealt with. Sin no longer has dominion over the people of God. You have been set free from the power of Satan. You have been reconciled to God the Father. So you have peace with the Lord Jesus He has delivered you and now pronounces upon you the benediction of his shalom. Then secondly, Isaiah is told to remind God's people that her iniquity is pardoned. There's not one unpardonable sin, not one unpardonable sin that God's people have to live with that still remain written in God's record against you. As the psalmist says, with him there is pardon that he may be feared. There is forgiveness of sins, complete forgiveness through the shedding of the blood. Because all of your iniquity has been laid upon the Lord Jesus who paid the wages for all of your sins, all of them, in his once-for-all sacrifice of himself. Then Isaiah is told again, thirdly, cry to her that she has received a double for her sins. The Hebrew word for double there is not in in the sense of twice the amount or uh, some kind of double payment. There's not a double jeopardy with the Lord your God, but the word there is really in terms of being folded over uh, as a warm blanket. uh, It's neatly folded in two layers or At your dinner table, uh, Tuesday taco night, you have a taco shell. Or when you fold a pizza slice in half, it's in terms of its exact match. The exact payment has been made in the person of a substitute. And based on these gospel grounds, 
the Lord says, comfort my people. This is the kind of thing that the Lord your God does throughout the scriptures. The kind of thing that the Apostle John does, for example, in his first letter, when he says in the middle of chapter 2, you remember that lyrical section, my little children, I write to you so that you may know that your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. And you need to be keep reminded of that kind of gospel comfort as the people of God, that you are no longer under condemnation, but you live in a state of justification. You no longer live in the pit of destruction, but your feet are standing on the rock of salvation. You no longer live in the weakness of the flesh, but you live indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. No longer under the tyranny and impotence of the law, but you live under the reign of grace and in, under the reign of righteousness. No longer exposed to curse or shame because your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are no longer covered in dust and ashes. You're no longer sitting in darkness because he has called you to his marvelous light. You have a beautiful headdress. Your head has been anointed with the oil of gladness, clothed with garments of salvation, with a crown of righteousness awaiting for you. And what follows in the rest of this passage are really three voices of comfort. Based on that gospel ground, what we see emerging out of this passage are three distinct voices. And let me just uh, alert your attention to the structure of this passage. You notice in verses 3 through 5, there's first a voice crying out in the wilderness. Then in verses 6 through 8, uh, you see the voice from above commanding a message, which Isaiah the prophet is then to cry with his own voice. And then finally, in verses 9 through 11, there's the third voice, the voice that is to be lifted up with strength in Zion on a mountain, the voice that has been entrusted to the church. As we sang earlier out of Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord thundering forth. You see how there are three voices that the Lord commands to be sounded towards the people of God. And I want you to not just hear, but I want you to see these three voices this morning, realizing that these voices truly represent the essential burden of the scripture. These voices lie in the very heart of your God in his covenant love and compassion towards you. One of the benefits, of course, of public teaching of scripture is so that you can go back on your own and explore further. And I pray in the Lord that whenever you come back to Isaiah chapter 40, you would continually see and be reminded of these three voices. Whenever the word of God is opened up, the Lord is speaking into your heart, right into your heart, through whatever the human instrument he uses, through the voice of a mere man in preaching, to bring and minister comfort to you. And these are three voices that the Lord wants his church to listen to. And you, uh, therefore, as the people of God, do have a vested interest uh, in the clear sounding of these voices. Uh, This is something you should eagerly expect and long for. 
Pray for your pastor, for the ministry of the word in your church. Pray for the man of God's own choosing to bring these voices before you faithfully. And whenever you hear these voices rejoicing God's goodness and God's faithfulness, uh, this is God in his love and grace uh, speaking to you right into the heart. Well, will you look first then with me at the first voice that we see in the passage in verses 3 through 5, the voice, first of all, crying out in the wilderness. The voice in the wilderness, which is, of course, fulfilled, the gospel tells us, in the ministry of John the Baptist. He was the Elijah to come, preparing the way of the Lord for the coming of Jesus. And the effect of his preparatory ministry is pictured in verses 3 and 4 in terms of the image of the leveling of the landscape. Mountains and hills being brought low and valleys lifted high and the jagged and rugged, rough, crooked terrain being smoothed out and straightened so that every obstacle is removed, every barrier is cleared, and a straight path is opened up for the revelation of the glory of God in the coming of the salvation of God in verse 5. In terms of the mountains, mountains that formerly stood of human pride, hardness of heart, stubbornness of will, the dullness of mind, they all need to be removed and leveled. And that's the voice of preparation, the ministry of John the Baptist calling people to repentance, urging them to flee from the wrath to come telling the people to believe the gospel, crying out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the voice of preparation, the ministry of John the Baptist, calling people to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, of course, there's something very unique and unrepeatable about John's ministry. Uh, He alone is a Baptist, and I'm speaking here redemptive historically, not denominationally. He alone is a Baptist, and you are not. Yet, this unique, one-of-a-kind, extraordinary office, not to be repeated in the church, both in terms of its content and ethos of that message, his voice is to be heard and repeated in every single gospel ministry. In a real sense, you this morning are also sitting under ministry of preparation because Jesus is coming again to bring salvation to all those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that day is drawing near, the day when his glory will be revealed and all flesh and eye, every eye, shall indeed see him when Jesus comes to judge the world. And so, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, In view of that day, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, Scripture commands the church, preach Jesus Christ, the word of God, in season and out of season, and call people constantly to repentance and to faith. That's how the voice of preparation is sounded, the prepare the way of the Lord, because he is coming soon. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And so every valley needs to be lifted up, every mountain brought low. Your pride 
needs to be cleared and removed. The way of the Lord is prepared. The way of the Lord is being uh, prepared uh, by the proclamation of the Lamb of God. That's the comforting voice of the gospel. And as Christ is proclaimed, uh, the Lord means to deal uh, with you individually in your sins, in your residual pride, to pave the way for His glory to be revealed in your life. And this is a comforting thing because the repentance in the gospel is not a repentance leading to despair, but this is repentance unto life. So point people to the Lamb of God who saves his people from sin and let his glory pave its way into your life as you behold the Lamb of God. As with John the Baptist, let the atmosphere and attitude of your life be he must increase and I must decrease. Well, that's the first voice, voice we see crying out in the wilderness And as long as the church of Jesus Christ is in the wilderness, as the book of Hebrews tells us, as long as we are the church militant with problems of sin and unbelief still among us, because we have not yet entered the promised land of rest, so then until that day of your entry into the eternal Sabbath rest of glory, you need to hear the same gospel voice testifying to the Lamb of God, magnifying Christ, And if you hear that voice, Scripture says, do not harden your heart. Always respond to preaching of the gospel in faith, in repentance, and go on bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Knowing that he's a God who resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's a God who adorns the humble with salvation. He's a God who lifts up the lowly. And what great encouragement and anticipation you have as a congregation in the New Covenant. Because the faithful biblical ministry, no matter who the human preacher is, coming to you from this pulpit, the biblical ministry that you sit under, the Bible says, is a greater ministry than that of John the Baptist. Jesus says, even the least gifted in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. The voice you hear of the human preacher in the ministry of the New Covenant is more full of power and glory than the voice crying out in the wilderness of John the Baptist. Because you have among you the spirit of the risen Christ, the spirit of the risen Lamb, sent from above, speaking right through the human servant directly into your heart as the gospel is preached. And it is, it is crying to you, Behold the Lamb of God. Know that all your sins are dealt with. Know that your sins are gone by his re- death and resurrection. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you are being saved. So repent and believe the good news and go on living in union with the Lord Jesus. In the Lamb of God, therefore, God's people find comfort. Then there's a second voice in our passage, and look down in verses 6 through 8, where you see the voice now coming from above, commissioning the prophet Isaiah to cry. 
And Isaiah is rather perplexed. Uh, What shall I cry? Isaiah is somewhat like Charles Spurgeon, who is said to have frequently spent Saturday nights struggling to find text, pondering, what shall I preach? Isaiah is asking the same question, what shall I cry? What's the message I cry to the people of God? And the voice from above says, cry concerning the eternal, permanent, glorious character of God and his word, as opposed to the passing transience and the weakness and the frailty and the mortality of men. Cry, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, of course, you hear that declaration sometimes whenever uh, scripture is publicly read. You hear that declaration attached to the end of the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What you do not often appreciate in your own mind is that Isaiah here is not talking about mere vegetation. He's not talking about the grass in your backyard or by the side of interstate that seasonally springs up and wilts and withers and fades away. But Isaiah is talking about you. Verse 7 says, Surely people are grass, like flower petals that fall to the ground. So your days are numbered. Your days are like grass. The best of human qualities, both in terms of your bodily existence and uh, its hesed, its beauty and glory, all that the best your human life can produce. They're all perishable, they're changeable, they're numbered, they're subject to decay. But Isaiah is told to cry to the people of God, the word of God stands forever. The word of God never dies, it endures, it lives, it is eternal. It cannot be broken. It is reliable. It is firmly fixed. And the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, applies this verse and quotes this verse in his first letter and says, This abiding, enduring word of God is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. That's the comfort that God is speaking to you this morning. We all are like a mist. We do not know what tomorrow may bring. Here today, gone tomorrow, our days on earth are finite. Uh, More and more by the day, our outer man is wasting away at an alarmingly, increasingly rapid pace. You are wasting away in your outer frame. But the gospel is the imperishable seed that brought life and immortality to shine into your soul. And it is living and active. The word of God is at work within you who believe. So whenever God's word is spoken to you and it is believed on and obeyed and trembled at and delighted in and meditated upon by you, the Bible says it is doing something within you that is eternally lasting and glorious. It is renewing your mind inwardly. It is sanctifying you. It is strengthening you. You may not see that with your own eyes, but whenever the word of God is ministered to you, that word 
is doing something eternally lasting and significant in the lives of the people of God, so that you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another in Christ's likeness, and you are going from strength to strength, and the word is bearing fruit that will last and will redound throughout eternity to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. The grass withers, you fade away, but God's word remains forever. There's a number of applications you can draw, of course, from it yourself. That means whenever you hear the word proclaimed to you in the church, you need to know that it is an event truly uh, that is happening between heaven and earth. Be resolved, therefore, never to miss the public feeding of the scriptures. Because this is the appointed means whereby God does something eternally lasting within you. As the Puritan Richard Baxter says, a pastor preaches the word as a dying man to dying men. If you think about it, the relationship between the pastor and the flock is such that he's either going to officiate your funeral or you are going to witness his homecoming or homegoing. One of you will die first. You're like the grass that withers away. But the comforting truth is that the word of God stands forever. The gospel does not change. And it is the good news that testifies to you the everlasting steadfast love of the Lord. It proclaims to the love of God for you that has conquered death. And it is ministering to you the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and his grace that is for you. Uh, even when elderly saints come down with things like Alzheimer's or dementia, or you may have family members, surely members within this congregation, or if your own physical frame is wasting away and wearing out like an old tire due to things like cancer, or if your mental faculties are being corroded due to age or disease, and you can hardly remember anything as you get older and you become more frail physically and mentally, the comfort for the saints is that the Word of God abides in you and it does not change. It lives in you and it cannot die. That means, of course, that in the health and vigor that God has given you, you need the whole counsel of God continually stored up and written on your heart. You need to give yourself to take in that which is truly most important, more important than daily bread. You need to be like John Bunyan, of whom it was once said, prick him anywhere and he will bleed. Bibline. You need to have the active and living and abiding word of God within you. I see several young women and young men maybe contemplating relationships. Don't go for that man who just brings you flowers. Save yourself heartaches. Don't be too impressed with them. They are like grass. They wither away. But rather seek to link up with a man in whom the word of God is living, who trembles at God's word, who delights in God's word more than he does in you. 
Or if you're a young man, do be sensible and bring flowers to the girl. <laughs> but make sure that he is a woman of the word. Marry a Mary, whose customary posture is to sit at the feet of Jesus, listen, and eat what is good. How about all the struggles and trials of the Christian life, every doubt and unbelief that linger on in your own mind? There's only one place you can bring them to, and that is the Scriptures. The saints of God, in all their trials, in all their afflictions, on their deathbeds, must turn to the Scriptures. Do you remember John the Baptist? The greatest man born of woman by Jesus' testimony. Even John the Baptist, in the frailty of his humanity, yes, his spirit-filled, redeemed humanity, faced moments of doubt and affliction of spirit. And this was even after he had seen with his own eyes uh, the heavens being parted and the Spirit of God descending upon the Lord Jesus. And he heard with his own ears the testimony of the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now listen to him. As John the Baptist sat in that dark dungeon imprisoned by Herod for righteousness' sake, about to be beheaded. Remember how John had to send his disciples to Jesus and ask, are you really the one? Or is there another one? Should we go look for another one? And do you remember what Jesus, the chief shepherd, does in order to comfort John in his affliction? And Jesus points John the Baptist back to the scriptures Look at all these prophecies, the servant songs of Isaiah, for example. See how the blind receive their sight, the lame begin to walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. I am he of whom the scriptures speak. And so it is with you as well in all your afflictions and trials of faith. Uh, you need the word of God more than anything in this world. You need the reminders of the word. You need the feeding and nourishing of God's word because it alone stands forever. So that's the second voice we hear, not just the Lamb of God in whom we find comfort, but in the word of God, God's people find comfort. But then finally, will you look at the third voice in verses 9 through 11, the voice that is to be lifted up with strength, the voice sounded forth on the mountaintop as it heralded the good news. This is the voice entrusted to the church uh, in order to sound out of Zion, the mount that is established in this world. And I don't need to explain to a psalm-singing congregation the significance of this imagery. This is talking about the church. The highest mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord, and the Lord says, lift up your voice to proclaim the good news atop a high mountain. Proclaim the good news to the cities of Judah, to the tribes of Israel, to the flocks of God, to the congregations of the Lord Jesus. And this is a message out of Zion to be heralded, you see, in verse 9. Uh, it is simply, Behold your God. 
to speak the message with boldness in the power of the Spirit. You need to lift your voice with strength and cry to the people of God to behold your God. I would submit to you, I believe I mentioned this four years ago when I preached last time, that if you are to summarize the whole of the Bible with just one sentence, my pastoral answer uh, would be, this is a very cry that sums up the whole message of the Bible. Behold your God. Behold the immensities and infinities of your God. Behold the God of grace and glory. Behold the God in in his Godness. Behold, in, uh, behold his triunity. Behold the God who is love. And that is the standing commission given to the church. Pastoral ministry is reminding the people of God to look up. Not look up to the hills of difficulties, wondering from whence your help will come. But you need to lift your souls to the Lord himself and behold him with the eyes of faith. And as Calvin says, this indeed is the sum of our happiness, the beatific vision, the beholding of God, the blessedness of it that awaits you eternally. And isn't that the very whole point of the Christian life anyway? That in union and communion with Christ, in fellowship with the Spirit, you have come to behold your God in his glory and grace, shining in the face of the Lord Jesus You shall see him as he is. He is the ultimate joy and satisfaction and rest for your souls. And in this life, that sight is going to be given to you exclusively by faith. Through the ministry of the word, through the eyes of your heart being enlightened as the gospel is preached, its end is to get you to comprehend the glory of God in the the face of the Lord Jesus to get you to taste the first fruits of the life of the world to come in full enjoying of God. And that's always going to be the primary spiritual need of God's people. That's going to be your primary supreme comfort and joy when you behold your God. And yet, we are so distracted from that spiritual vision. Our eyes are not fixed upon Christ. We don't do what Robert Murray McShane used to do, which is really a paraphrase of uh, this cry to be heralded on on Mount Zion, that we don't often, for every look that we take at ourselves, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ and behold him. The Bible says that is a condition the natural condition of this world. This is not something you can do naturally. Indeed, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4 tells us that there are two veils that fall upon all humanity. There's a mosaic veil, the veil of mosaic covenant that naturally remains over your heart. Whenever you seek to rely on the works of the flesh in your Christian life, whenever you turn to the law to be justified, whenever you try to conjure up within yourself to find something justifiable and acceptable in the sight of God, that will keep you from beholding your God in his saving glory. And there's also a satanic veil. The gods of this age blinding the minds, and in the case of believers, the gods of 
this age, obscuring the vision of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Well, the only thing that can shred those veils to pieces is the power of the gospel proclaimed that says to you, Behold your God. And as you turn your gaze upon the Lord Jesus, a true comfort for the people of God will always be theological and spiritual and Christological. Notice how Isaiah is drawing our attention to what exactly about the Lord you need to behold. Verse 10 and verse 11 both mention the arm of the Lord. Verse 10, his arm is mighty. He's a strong, sovereign ruler. The Lord with his power is bringing recompense or reward for his own work. The recompense for the Lord our Savior uh, is his own people. The reward for his saving work for the Lord Jesus is you. And by his saving power, he is bringing you and preparing you. But then verse, uh, verse 11 mentions another arm. It is the arm of a gentle shepherd, the tender arm that carries you close to his bosom, close to his heart, to lead you by his counsel and to receive in glory thereafter. That's the comfort Isaiah is given to proclaim that God's people ought to have when they behold a God as the good and gentle shepherd. As we heard from Psalm explanation from Psalm 23, he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. And in his power, in his gentleness, the arm of the Lord is mighty and tender. And that's the God who is for you. And that's the God who is your God. As you behold your God, the scriptures promise that he will be your refuge and dwelling place. As you behold your God, even in the darkness of your struggle by faith, you will go on to discover that underneath are always going to be everlasting arms. So that's the third voice. The church is commanded to cry out, Behold your God. And indeed, the people of God find comfort in the arm of the Lord, whom you are beholding by faith. Well, three voices of comfort crying to you, Behold the Lamb of God, uphold the Word of God, and continually cast yourself upon the arm of the Lord your God, the Savior Shepherd who carries you. And let me finish with these thoughts. All these three voices, all these distinct voices, are at the end of the day, really one and the same voice. All these voices are like the um, shaft in the gospel arrow, Charles Spurgeon says. They carry the comfort of the gospel, but the very tip of the arrow the sharp point that penetrates into your soul is simply the invitation, come. That's how the Bible ends. The spirit and the bride says, come. All these three voices are really the voice of your beloved, calling the people of God and telling them, come unto me. The Holy Spirit and the church 
the spirit and the bride conjointly conspire to call you to come to the Lord Jesus who is coming soon. And so whoever is thirsty, come. That's the ultimate voice of the Lord that is comforting you. And so a real question for the people of God always is, do you continually come to the Lord Jesus, to the fountain, to be filled? Are you in darkness? Then he is your light. Are you weak? Then he is your strength. Are you depressed? He is your joy. Are you sorrowful? He is your comfort. Are you in spiritual and moral bankruptcy? He is your redeemer. Are you in sin? He is your savior. Are you in despair? He is your everlasting glory. Spiritual comfort for you is not found outside of the church because it is in the context of the ministry appointed in the church that the Lord your God uh, gives it to you abundantly. Well, let's continually heed his voice and respond to it in faith and in love together. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the otherworldly blessing of the gospel ministry. We thank you for your kind provision of the word of God and pray that by it you would cause us to walk in true fear of you and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would grow and nourish this congregation in unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and continually uh, build up this flock. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.